You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode is about a year in the making. It features Ashley Acuna. Ashley is the creator and host of the uber-popular online talk show, The Grapevine. After earning a degree in film from University of the Arts in Philadelphia, Ashley entered the job market in the middle of a recession and couldn't find work in her desired field. So she did what a lot of us have had to do, took a job that may not have been her life's work, but did pay the bills. Ashley then leveraged that job in a way that many people do not. She used the financial resources it provided to create a platform for millennials to discuss issues that concern them. She also had the focus and discipline to consistently develop her idea outside of her day job. The result? A YouTube channel that boasts 155,000 subscribers and a whole lot of content that has gotten people talking. So let's hear just how she did it. Take a listen and enjoy. Ashley, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I feel like this is a long time (laughs) coming. Because it is. (laughs) It's been like a year in the making. Yeah, it definitely has. I feel like we, I don't know when you spoke to DeMarcus, but I know you and I spoke for the first time in January. Yes. But also I know for me, like this year has just been a blur. So it's almost over too. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I I feel like I got a lot done, but just the the way that time moves. Like, I don't know if it's just being over 30, but it's just like, like it, I just can't even get over. Like you look up and the year is over. Yeah. So you know, yeah. gotta make it happen. Yeah, definitely. I'm but glad to be here. I'm, we're so happy to have you. Um, so let's jump into it. Okay, great. Who is Ashley Acuna? Well, I am an artist. Um, I'm a daughter. I'm a child of God. Um, I'm a woman. I'm a child of the diaspora, the African diaspora. Um, and those are pretty much all of the things that kind of encompass who I am. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about the artist. Yeah. Piece first, because I do feel like. Um, a lot of times when people move into media, they get the title of media personality. Yeah, I, I'm um, not that. And, and, uh, yeah, right. I reject that. And a lot of that <laughs> is contrived. Yeah. Um, as opposed to people looking at media as an art form and a medium mm-hmm. for people to actually convey to the world who they are and what they believe. This yeah. whole concept of like media personality and influencer is a little bit shallow in my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me when that love for the arts in whatever form and whatever, whatever that means to you. Mm-hmm. When did that develop? Um, I think definitely like at a young age, I've always loved like music. I've always loved writing and reading. Mm-hmm. Um, huge writer. I would, before I started writing scripts, I was writing like stories. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I was, before I had my laptop, I was like in middle school, I was using my dad's laptop and writing this, like what I thought was an amazing story. <laughs> it was probably trash, but, and I remember he deleted it like a week later. And I was like, like shell shocked. I was Mm -hmm. so angry. I was so sad. I was crying. And that's when I knew as well as, you know, watching movies and like thinking about the characters after and like really just talking about the movie way past, you know, my friends had like already changed the conversation Mm -hmm. and my love for film, my love for art was just like always there. So that definitely led me to pursue a career in art, to pursue an education in art. Um, So I would definitely say it was, it started at a young age. And you are of Nigerian descent. I am. Yes. First generation. First generation. So we've talked about this often on the show because many of us um, have parents who immigrated to the U.S. either one or both. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a certain expectation about like the careers that you're going to go into and the path that you're going to take. Yeah. And oftentimes it's like work hard, choose a a secure career Mm -hmm. um, and build a life for yourself and be able to live well. I don't think anyone would call a career in film like a secure space. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so what did no, your no, parents no. have to say when you were like, this is what I want to do? Well, before I, I um, started down the road to filmmaking, I wanted to be an actress first. Mm-hmm. So I actually graduated from high school early okay. and like started acting and like going to classes in the city. And I had a private acting coach. And my I'm lucky because my parents aren't traditional in the sense that they're like very strict. They weren't super religious. Like I was able to like go to my friend's house and go out and travel with my friends in the life. Uh, yeah, I, when I hear these stories about other Nigerian kids and African kids, I'm like, wow. Like, I 
I, we, we were really lucky. Um, and so my parents weren't traditional in the sense that you have to be a doctor. Um, my older sister's a doctor and she wanted to be a doctor. My younger brother is, you know, studying to get into for his MCATs now, but that's something that he wants to do. So I was lucky that my parents didn't care. One thing I will say is that they had enough trust in me to know that I was going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still have that belief in me. So. So you wanted to be an actress. Yeah. When did that switch? Or maybe it didn't. Maybe you still uh-huh. feel like I want to have, you know, I want to have a foray into that space. But when did your world open up and your vision, when did it expand beyond just the actress piece? Um, it was definitely, I was working with an, a private acting coach mm-hmm. um, in the city. She had like, you know, taught people like Zoe Saldan and other people. And she said to me, and at that t- time I was auditioning for conservatories, you know, mm-hmm. to go to college conservatory, like Rutgers, Mason Gross, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And she said to me, she said, you know, it's going to be hard for you. She's a white woman. She's going to be hard for you as a black woman to get roles. And she didn't do it. She was being really honest with me, not because of my talent, but because of the fact that I was black. And I was like, I never want my blackness to stop me from making money, mm-hmm. right, <laughs> essentially, right. and doing what I love. And I said, you know, I have to write my own scripts. I have to become a filmmaker. I mean, I had already, you know, been reading scripts mm-hmm. and had that love for film already. So it happened when I was 18. And instead of going to a theater conservatory, I decided to go to a film school and I went to the University of the Arts in Philly. So you ended up in Philly, which we talked about yeah. our mutual love uh, for the city that loves you back. I yes. say all the time, like that tagline, yeah. brotherly love was cool, but like, I do feel like like Philly loved me back. Like I, I was did. just embraced. Mm-hmm. I had a whole community there, mm-hmm. et cetera. So I did a lot of dating in Philly as well. Oh, okay. Let's they talk about it. They love black women over there, they definitely. Do. Like, yeah, it's they do. a different, um, and it's, it's loving black women in a different way. Yeah. Like, I feel like it's loving black women in the sense that you could bring your whole self to the table and people embrace that. Yeah. Um, and they adore it. Yeah. And I say, now I'm 37, mm-hmm. and I say that I did my best dating in, in Philadelphia. Philly, yeah. Like, how crazy is that? Because I was crazy. like 20 at yeah. the time. Mm-hmm. And also, it's not like, it's like a, a natural love in terms of like, I'm not loving you until I get something else. Right. It's like, I'm just here loving you. Talk about it. Yeah. So I probably should have just <laughs> stayed in Philly. Stayed there and, <laughs> and settled down um, with one of the brothers that were pursuing back then. But that's a whole other conversation. Right. right. <laughs> Two hour conversation. Yes, exactly. Um, so you were coming from, where did you grow up? I grew up in South Orange, New Jersey. South Orange. Yes. So coming from, um, South Orange is a little bit more city or metropolitan than some other areas of New Jersey. Um, New Jersey. Definitely. Yeah. But did you feel a, a cultural shift or a culture shock coming from? Um, some of the more small town elements of Jersey moving um, to Philly? For, what's interesting about growing up in South Orange, New Jersey, mm-hmm. is that a lot of people that I grew up, you know, I didn't realize it till later, but their parents were from New York. Mm-hmm. And where I grew up was very diverse, both racially diverse, religiously diverse, and even economically diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would definitely say that, like, that influx of, like, you know, young people from New York moving to South Orange to have children, um, was great because I grew up around everything. I saw everything and going to a city like Philly, I was, I felt prepared. Yeah. Now were other people prepared for me? No. <laughs> Cause they were definitely grew up in small towns. Yes. But coming from South Orange, we had, you know, people had gay parents, every, we saw everything. So when you say people weren't prepared for you, what were some of the experiences that you had where like there was just a disconnect? Oh, I remember my first day of art school was orientation and we were sitting like in a small group, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted people to get to know each other. It was like three days of orientation. And there was a white guy there and he said something like, he said, you know, they asked us, what are you proud of? What are you proud of? It could be anything. And he said, I'm proud of my being white. Wait, what? He's, he sure did. <laughs> and I was looking around like, did anybody hear this man? He said, I'm proud of being white. I'm proud of the white race. I'm just really proud of being white. And I just looked at him and, I, you know, it was just odd and nobody else found it odd. And I just had to like raise my hand mm-hmm. and just, you know, give him a quick history lesson and let him know that like, you know, it's great to be proud of where you're from, but also know whiteness carries a lot of um, racism, death. There's a lot of blood. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stealing, colonization. So I had to give him a little history lesson quickly. So you were being Ashley that yeah. we know today. Oh, definitely. At 18 or 17 definitely. or what have you. Definitely. At, at a young age, I always felt something was off. Mm-hmm. Even I remember watching award shows and being like, why aren't these Black people who are like at the top of the charts performing? Why do they keep putting these like corny... <laughs> 
point of basic. Pe- yeah, basic performances when like, you know, Beyonce, Destiny Child, they're here killing it. Mm-hmm. So-and-so is here killing it, but they're not being asked to perform on these main stages. I just always felt that was weird. Right. And people forget, I think sometimes because since you brought up Beyonce, mm-hmm. you know, she is an icon now. She's Definitely. an international superstar that crosses genres, race lines. Like everybody knows who she is. Mm-hmm. But people forget like the Destiny's Child who popped on Urban Radio because Wyclef put the remix on. It's like definite. people forget that that they really paid their dues. They really did. And I remember being a young girl and I remember seeing um was it no 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 no? They had all they had like the prom hairstyles. <laughs> I just like me and my friends, we were just like, wow, I remember buying like the Destiny's Child CD. I remember all of that. Yeah, back yeah. then it was like I wa I think it was maybe a day in the life mm-hmm. or something, and they were diary MTV diary or MTV diary. Yeah. yeah, like um, you think you know, but you have no idea. Yeah, yeah. And it was like <laughs> I think it was right after Latavia and Latoya left, left. and they were just <laughs> or kicked out. Or yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, forcibly, uh, yeah. You know, they had to forcibly resign. Um, and like Farah and I think it was Michelle and Farah first started, and they had like flown coach and like their dancers weren't there yet and like and and when you think back to somebody paying their dues in that way and now becoming what they've become yeah. because people probably try to put it all on Beyonce but like all of them came to that Matthew No School of Artist Development yeah. and are set for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And what I will say is like, regardless of how you feel about Beyonce as an artist, yeah. right? And and I'll be the first to say, I'm not one of these people who goes to every Beyonce concert and like, yeah. you know, it's hardcore. But regardless of what you feel about her in that way, her work ethic and even what her family invested yeah. and building something from the ground up and turning it into an empire that moves beyond just putting out albums is a feat that um, opens doors yeah. that many of us will benefit from. Definitely, for sure. Definitely. Like, and we were, we've been talking to Marcus and I about the whole Tyler Perry situation as well. And, yeah. And what he's been able to do. It's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. like, I feel like we're moving into a, a space to your original point where we are kicking down doors and mm-hmm. becoming um, mainstream, for lack of a better word. Yeah. But I do wonder um, if we're reaping the benefits financially in the way that we should be. I mean, yeah, that's a whole conversation about mm-hmm. capitalism yeah. and who makes what. And it's, it's, it's a deep conversation. What I will say is that like, you know, this is the system that we live under Mm -hmm. and I'm happy that people like Tyler Perry are going to be able to bring jobs to places like Atlanta and people who never knew that they would be in production are working in production. I was just in Atlanta. We talked about this Mm -hmm. earlier and to me it was dope that all the Uber drivers I met were like writers or cinematographers or PAs. I Mm -hmm. met a stunt double Wow, and they were all black and I, I really... I, like, I love the fact that like someone is coming to Atlanta and bringing industry and that's what we need more of. Like I would love to see someone like Pyre Moss, right. I don't know, open um, a warehouse somewhere where people can just like make clothes and it's black people in a black neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I see I see more of that in the future and it's exciting. Yeah. You know, you can't cure the world. We do live under a capitalism, you know, system, but mm-hmm. I love that there are black people doing what they can. Sure. Yeah. And you're one of those black people who's doing what she can as way as well to <laughs> create opportunities. Um, but but talk to me about what your expectations were when you graduated from University of the Arts, like for, for your professional career. So expectation wise. So I definitely went in. I had the idea for the grapevine when I was in college, mm-hmm. like my junior year of college. After college, um, I did a lot of internships for free. Um, I think now you can't like you have to pay your interns. But back yeah. then you didn't have to. Oh, yeah, it was the wild, wild west. Yeah, it was crazy. So I was working like retail and I was, you know, working for Bradford Young, who's um, he he works with Ava DuVernay a lot. He did. He shot shot Selma and Star Wars and all this other stuff. I was working for him and I was like working at Nickelodeon and all these other places. And I wasn't making money and it was hard and it was depressing. And I I saw a lot of my other friends, people who were older and in the industry. And what I saw happening was, you know, when production was hot, they were working, but they didn't have health insurance. Yeah. They, you know, in the wintertime when production is low, they didn't have money. They weren't working. I was like, I don't want to do that. So I was like, let me go and get this corporate job <laughs> and make this money and do what I want on the side. And that's what I've been doing since I've, you know, worked corporate made money and just put that into my endeavors. Um, Now I'm at a place where I work on the show full time, Mm -hmm. which is great. So, but I think it's another point that's important to uh, mention two points actually, is Mm. that you came out during a recession. Yeah. So in addition to 
having a career path that already is um, a bit murky financially and has its unique challenges, that time period in our economy, it was just like... It was horrible. Everybody was in the struggle. And it's one thing to like have worked and then the work dries up and you have a little nest egg. It's a whole other thing to be coming out of school trying to launch your career and get yeah. started and there are no opportunities available. And the rhetoric around millennials is that we're spoiled. <laughs> we have all these expectations. Everybody I knew, everybody I knew was working two jobs. Yes. Working jobs. And I had a film professor tell us, he was like, you know, I don't know how you kids do it. Like you guys are working and you guys are coming to these courses diligently yeah. and you're making great work. Kudos to you. But the rhetoric on TV was that we were spoiled. Mm-hmm. We had too many high expectations and these are coming from the people who kind of who ruined the economy. Yes. So that, that was the fuel for starting The Grapevine as well, too. I was really upset when I was watching news and it was like all these people in their 40s and 50s who had all these things to say about millennials but weren't in our positions. Right. It was and, very frustrating. And not for nothing, like I was talking about this with someone around my age. Mm-hmm. When we were in school, there was no gig economy. So uh-huh. it wasn't like you could hop on Fiverr and like, you know, sell your work there or drive Uber or do Instacart or Uber Eats. None of like that. you had a shift. You had to, for, for the most part, unless you were like somebody's personal assistant or had some flexible situation. Like when I did work study, I had to show up. Right. Within the time frame that they gave right. me or, or when I was interning, I had to be there at that time, which added another layer of difficulty in terms to do of just, what trying, you yeah, do. Yeah. To just balance everything and seize opportunity. Mm-hmm. But knowing I have to clock in here or I'm right. gonna lose my job. I was definitely clocking into work study and not there. <laughs> I was definitely. Yes, I was. Well, I, yes, I did do this 80 hours this week. But you know what? <laughs> I was not there. A, I think a lot of people did that. I worked at the law library. Okay. Um, it's kind of hard to do. But at I worked first, at the computer lab. Yeah, at first. But then like, so I did um, interlibrary loan. Mm-hmm. So basically what that was, like we'd get a request from another school, um, mm-hmm. like NYU Law or Rutgers Law, to send them a book through interlibrary loan. So I used to process those requests, like pull the book. Got um, it. You know, send it, fill out the paperwork, mail it out, and then also copy articles mm-hmm. for um, professors and law students. So if they needed something, they could put it in request. And, you know, I would just copy it and make that happen. Um, But once the woman who ran that work-study program got to know us, it was like three or four of us, she just kind of said like, do your own thing. Like, it's fine. Um, so then I could come in whenever. Yeah. And it was fine. Like, she never, even though I, I did the work, like, she never verified, you know, hours or whatever. But mm-hmm. the one plug for me was access to free copying. That's awesome. So being in school and being in, you know, I was an international relations major where we would we would have some class that has seven, eight books. I'm uh-huh. like, I'm not buying all these books. Yeah. So I would go to like whatever the main library, as soon as we got the book, let's try to get it for anybody else, check it out and then go to the law library and make free like tens, That's you know, 20 pages of copies, yeah. I mean, 100 pages of copies just to get what I needed. So that was the, the, the come up for, for me. On yeah, you got to utilize study. the system. You got to figure out a way. Listen, with <laughs> as much as tuition is. Right. So I don't even look at it as stealing. I look at it as like... <laughs> Y'all owe me this. Right. reparations. <laughs> right. I paid for it already, actually. Right. The fact that you have to pay for copies in college is just ridiculous to me anyway. Yeah, they find any way to like drain your pockets. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, you come out of school, move home. Yeah, back move to your back parents, home. Yep. Um, kind of doing your thing, making it, making it happen. Yep. And a light bulb goes off on you that there's a void... Yes. That needs to be filled. Yes. What happened exactly? Well, so that light bulb actually came junior year of college, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have any money. So what happened was after I got the corporate job, after working freelance for a little bit Mm -hmm. after college, got a corporate job and I was like, okay, I'm going to shoot like a pilot. I just always had the dream in me. One thing about me is like, I have a lot of Virgo in my chart. Oh gosh. So when I I start something (laughs) or like have an idea, I have to see it all the way through Mm -hmm. and it has to be perfection. So when I got the job, I was like, you know, I'm not working in production right now. I can't give up my dream. I'm not going to get lost in this corporate shuffle. Let me do what I set out to do. Mm -hmm. So I started shooting some pilots sucked got another job made more money and that's how we started shooting the show gotcha. that you see today yeah gotcha so what was the corporate job that you had if you can say so I worked at the Associated Press I mm-hmm. worked as a what was it a not a research assistant archival footage assistant okay. um administrative assistant then I worked at AOL I was an executive assistant to like a really high-powered exec and mm-hmm. I saw firsthand that was like really like my second foray into um, 
the media industry and meeting celebrities and meeting managers and being places and traveling. So it was very, it was great because while I was building this show, I had another avenue of really, really being in the industry and seeing a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. it was great. So when you first decided, all right, I'm going to do this day job and then build, did you have the name right away? I had the name in college, but you know, I don't like the name. I've never liked really? the name. Mm-mm. But you've kept it, obviously. But I've kept yeah. it, yeah, because I'm consistent. Right. But I've never liked the name, um, but I, we thought about like the whole idea of like, you know, the Marvin Gaye song, mm-hmm. I heard it through the grapevine. You hear it from this person and that person and that person. So we just decided to name it that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I find this interesting, especially <laughs> because you have a lot of Vir- Virgo on your chart. Yeah. Um, perfectionists, like all about the details. Yeah. It's got to be just so. Yes. If you didn't like it, mm-hmm. even though it, it has a great connotation uh-huh. for what you do, why did you go with it? Like, really? Because we, I couldn't think of anything else. Like, even mm-hmm. now, if you ask me what would you name it, I don't have a other name. Got it. I don't. So I was like, I'm not going to let the fact that I don't like the name stop me from putting it out. Mm-hmm. So that's the one thing with me is like, I'm not... I think a lot of times people have this fear to start because things aren't perfect. I don't have that. I'll just start, Mm -hmm. but I'll work towards perfection. And so if there are things that I can change, I know that it can be better. Sure. Well, I'll do that. But the name, you know, just decided to keep it. Gotcha. Okay. So what year was this? This was 2011. Okay. So the landscape with all the noise that we have, um, it wasn't as bad then it wasn't as the market was not as saturated with mm-hmm. so many voices everybody has a blog etc oh, it was no, still it was still all. bubbling yeah um, it's very different yeah so did, do you feel like you had foresight at the time or were you just like oh yeah no the, definitely yeah. Um, I'm a very humble person but one thing I will say is that I'm very creative I'm very talented I have an ability to come up with amazing content ideas and that's something that like I say with a battery in my as back you should. yeah mm-hmm. because you know it wasn't like this before. I mean, I just knew, I saw it. Mm-hmm. I was like, all this conversation everybody's having on the TL and social media, Right. this needs to be in a video format. Like, and you, you have to want to feel like, you have to feel like this could take place in my kitchen. This could mm-hmm. take place in my living room. I'm amongst friends. I feel like I have a voice in the table. I just knew. So I knew. You knew. Mm-hmm. Um, did the vision that you have had at the time match what we know Grapevine to be today? Definitely. Well, I did. It wasn't going to be an all black show mm-hmm. originally. I did read that. Although, it wasn't yeah. because, but the only people I had access to were my friends who were yes. black, right? Mm-hmm. But the original idea was for it to be diverse voices, was was for it to be white and Asian and Hispanic. So it that's the only thing that's changed. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, you had this idea, diverse voices speaking about issues of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you really get started though? Um, in terms of like shooting? Right. Like like we all know, like we have these ideas and one of the things about the population who listens to this show, mm-hmm. 26ers, we're all big dreamers. We all have like this really elaborate vision, but many people I think get overwhelmed by the logistics because they do want it to be just Perfect. right. Yeah. They want to have all the pieces. And I often like joke about this uh, with people who I know are have similar personalities and are similarly situated, having an idea and getting stuck in like the brainstorming or research phase. Yeah. Like six months researching just one camera lens instead of just getting started. Getting, just doing it, yeah. But for you, what did just doing it look like? Um, well, for me, I will say, as many complaints I do have about film school, I will say film school allowed me to um, consolidate a lot of ways to do things. Yeah. And it also helped my Rolodex in terms of who I would call on to do the show. Mm-hmm. So for me... Um, I don't have a problem starting. Yeah. So I just started. I said, this is my idea. I'm going to, I didn't have fear. Um, I didn't have anything to lose. (laughs) So I said, let me just start and let me just do this. But definitely my film background and knowing the right people to call. Also knowing like, okay, like lights shouldn't take this long Mm -hmm. or like, you know, we should use this type of microphone. That knowledge helped me not have to go to the internet to find so much out, you know? So that consolidated a lot of things. Got it. So you got the logistical piece together. Mm -hmm. When you started calling friends and acquaintances, like, this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Do you want to be down? Did people get it right away? No. No, they didn't. And, you know, I definitely had to pay people, but I was able to pay people a flexible rate <laughs> Yeah, because I know I knew who to call. But a lot of people didn't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, some people still don't understand. But I do think now what I will say is that when I first started, I was looking for a team. Yeah. And then I couldn't find a team. And then I was like, forget it. 
-hmm. Let me just start. And then my team naturally came to me. The people who got it naturally came. And I think that's like the key thing. Whenever you're doing something, don't worry about not having a PR person or not having a manager or not having this. Work with what you have. And those people who do understand your vision and believe in you will naturally come. And I think that's a core value for anyone trying to build anything. I firmly believe water seeks its own level. Yeah. So as you walk in exactly who you are and walk in it confidently, everybody's not going to get it. But you you have people that see the vision and they understand what it can be um, mm-hmm. because it takes a very special person, a kind of person. Oh, yes. Not everybody yeah. will see a million dollar idea and see it. No. Even people who work in spaces like Netflix or BuzzFeed, that don't mean nothing. Thank you. Not everybody understands what um, great content, great art is. Mm-hmm. They A lot of people and a lot of people who are gatekeepers simply just go off of what other people say. Absolutely. That follower mentality, that herd mentality, that is very real in this field. So you really have to like pay that stuff no mind. Exactly. And it's like, I always find it interesting now. I like chuckle when I see like actors or, or artists who are on social media just sharing viral videos like mm-hmm. that you're seeing everywhere else. Yeah. That is so funny to me because mm-hmm. I'm like, other people don't get it, but I'm like, they're clearly doing this because they're just trying to get eyes on their page. And somebody told them the way to do it was to literally just post the same viral content that everybody else that is everybody posting. Else is posting. I'm just like, that, you're not curating anything. Like, I, I don't, I have no interest in following you because you you posted the same video that I've seen 800 times. Mm-hmm. But I think there is um, something that has infected this space where like people will just copycat over and over and over again to try to get a small piece of the pie today. Me, I'd rather blaze a trail. Yeah. You know, and set the trends <laughs> yeah. for a larger piece down the line. Yeah, and it's... It's really prevalent in Mm -hmm. the media, in the media space. That's what I will say. It's really, really. And for me, I don't watch or listen. Like, I don't, I'm horrible. I love my friends, but I don't listen to their podcast. And it's not because I don't want to. It's literally because I don't have time. Mm -hmm. And I don't watch a lot of content. If I watch anything, there's films and television. Yeah. But uh, content like podcasts or even other talk shows, I don't watch. You know, people find it odd that I don't either. I used to do more. <laughs> yeah. Um. And for me, it's a, it's a time thing. So if I'm watching television, usually it's documentaries. I'm like a huge documentary. But it, it just speaks to who I am and mm-hmm. that I love, especially if it's about how something was built and it came about. I love the details. Yeah. Um. But also another piece of it for me is trying to maintain a unique voice. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you're all on other people's content, at times subconsciously without even thinking about it, you adapt, you start to adapt. And so for me, I listened to more shows Mm -hmm. before we started doing the December 26th podcast. And for me, it's like almost like now I just got to keep my head clear Clear and clean of all the other stuff so that this is me. It has nothing to do with what anyone else is doing. And that's it. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So what did your days look like? And those early in that early time of building um, Mm -hmm. this brand when you were working a day job. What was a normal day like for you? Um, So my day job was very demanding. Like (laughs) I look back and like, I don't know how I did it because I had a boss and I love him. Mm -hmm. I love him to death. He's my former boss. But working for him was literally like the devil wears Prada. Not in the fact, (laughs) not in the fact that he was mean or anything Mm -hmm. like that. More so it was just demanding. Like I remember he was in the South of France and there was like a taxi strike in the South of France. And I was on the beach because, you know, when your exec travels, you like do what you want. Yes. I was on the beach and he calls me and he says, there's a taxi strike. We need a helicopter. Okay. Right. So I had to figure that out while on the beach. It was like stuff like that, like Mm -hmm. getting calls at like 6 a.m. Like I need a suit for this 9 a.m. meeting and you need to bring it to my hotel. It was just like crazy stuff like that. Like I would get to the office at 8, leave at sometimes 12 a.m., I had, like I used to wake up in the middle of the night and be like, did I do that? Did I like, you know, did I do yeah, everything no. that I needed to do? So it was a very demanding job. Plus I was building the grapevine. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a trying time. Um, but I used any pocket of time that I had at my day job to work on the grapevine. Sure. So lunches, I didn't go out to lunch. Um, I knew that if I would go home, I would just want to sleep. So if I had stuff to do for the grapevine, I would stay in the office and mm-hmm. do it. Um, so it, it took a lot out of me. Yeah. There's one thing I know for sure. Um, um, being anybody's executive assistant is not my calling ever. Like, yeah. I just, I... I did it for the money because if you think about it, like, graduating with a film degree, right, and you, you're you saying that you want to do what you w- want to do mm-hmm. for yourself, but you also don't want to be destitute, right? right. So the, the other options was be a waitress. No. Mm-hmm. 
bartending. No, I don't want to work nights. I was like, let me get this job that pays six figures and just hustle. Right. And that's what I did. Cause I didn't, I didn't want to, I wanted to still be able to like go on vacation mm-hmm. and like, you know what I mean? And just live and not yeah. live pay to, paycheck to paycheck. And I think we've talked about it a bit on the show. There's a lot to be said for people who like know themselves. I think like there's this culture that's perpetuated that like, you've got to be a starving artist and it's not real. No. If you don't wear this badge of honor of being poor for your art or your craft. No. And A, everybody's not built for that. That sounds like white people who made it up <laughs> have generational wealth. <laughs> and that's, and okay. And that's another reason why, back to the other point of like, why I stopped listening to some podcasts. Because yeah. I got tired of hearing the story of like self-made, you know, how did you build this empire? Well, you know, I was working at my uncle's whatever law firm and I decided this is not what I want to do anymore. So I got a small loan of a half million dollars from my parents. And it's just like, dude, you're not self-made then. You're not. You're not. You you didn't build something from nothing. You got a windfall. Somebody gave me a half million dollars. (laughs) I can turn it Even the beginning of the story, working for your uncle's. Yes. Like, do you know what it means to actually have to apply for a job? Exactly. Other candidate. Exactly. Fight for that job. And and fight implicit and explicit bias. When I first got into um, AOL, the racism, the casual Mm -hmm. racism that I experienced, I will never forget this white girl. So it's funny because Donovan, who's on the grapevine, he hired me at AOL. Really? Yes. He interviewed me. Like we instantly clicked. And if it wasn't for him, I would have, I would not have gotten the job because the other white woman there who he was working with to fill this position said, I don't think she's a good fit. You know, they, they didn't want, they wanted to hire other candidates, Mm -hmm. but he was set on hiring me and the executive liked me. So they ended up hiring me. But if it wasn't for him, you know, I remember one time I was working late in the office and the white girl who was in charge of that process of me being hired, she started talking to me. She's like, you know, where are you from? I told her, I was like, I'm from South Orange, New Jersey. I didn't know she was Googling it as we were mm. talking. And she's like, oh, I'm like, I'm really impressed. I'm really impressed. And I, I was just like, who did you think? Right. Like, what did you, what was your impression of me when I walked in? For you to say, oh, I'm impressed that you come from someplace like this. I just find it very interesting. <laughs> My favorite is you're really articulate. Yeah, I got a lot of that. I'm, not, I'm just like, what? and I will ask, what does that mean exactly? And then they're dumbfounded. Yeah, they don't know how to answer. They don't yeah. know how to answer that question. Yeah. Or um, the the snap judgments about like how you got there. Like, every, you know, they, everybody thinks you're a mercy admission or a mercy hire. Right. Um, but then being intimidated when they realize, no, she's really good yeah, at what, at she, what does. she does. I had to come into work. I was like, all right, this guy is an executive. I'm When I'm in the office, he's meeting with celebrities every day. I have to look at the part. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, outfit, hair, yes. beat face. I, to get that job, I had to do a lot, mm-hmm. you know, just to even get in the door and stay in the door. So it's just a different ball game, Right. And people, like, I think I've been, I remember my first law firm job, mm-hmm. um, out of, you know, graduated from law school, I had to, I felt the same pressure. Right. right? And I was at a litigation firm. So people worked long hours and, you know, you, you have to, you can't dress casually, but I noticed that the women in the office didn't really um, dress up in the way that I, I would expect. Now me coming in as this black chick straight out of school mm-hmm. um, and had an unconventional path to get there. So I had turned down a big corporate law firm job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came in as like a, a consultant, like a contractor. Right. Um, and from day one, I didn't dress like a contractor. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget like the first time I walked into a black, I mean, a, a white female attorney's office and she looked me from head to toe. And mm-hmm. that became like an ongoing thing every day mm-hmm. with just little snide comments and, and, and what have you. Yeah. But I'm like, you can roll in here with whatever on Looking and your like, hair all look like that. That, right. yeah, that, that does not work do for that. us. That does not work for us. I might not be made into a full-time employee. Exactly. Exactly. If I exactly. don't look the part. Yeah. And literally when I finally, and they came to me and said, hey, you know, we'd like to hire you full-time. And I wasn't even like pressed about it. But one of the things that was mentioned is you come in here so put together, like you're going to court every single day. And Bingo. Yes. And what people don't realize is that's what I have to do. I'm not, to do I'm it. not given the benefit of the doubt. And that's why I also kind of roll my eyes at this whole like Steve Jobs thing where like, you know, people are on this unassuming. I just roll around in jeans and a turtleneck and, mm-hmm. you know, I'm respected and, and all this other stuff. Yeah. Like, white people can do that. You can do yeah. that. We cannot. Yeah. I mean, we see it with things like the fire festival. Yeah. That other girl, Elizabeth Holmes. What was her name? I don't know. From uh, created that. Thanos or, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You see that, you know, they can look any type of way, but the whiteness and the narcissism, mm-hmm. um, 
allows people to follow them and believe in them. Believe in them. You can never see a Black people, Black person get away with what they got away with. Yes. So the whiteness is what breaks barriers, unfortunately. And the, the whiteness and the ability to sell and keep selling without yeah. producing any results. Without anything. Like, we get one and, shot, and if that. not only that, actually failing, because you have to remember this guy from the Fire Festival, he failed. He failed. His business failed. And they still gave him money. Even if y'all haven't watched that Fire Festival documentary, Man, I was just like, it. you've got to be kidding it me. It was crazy. But then also just the, the megalomania and the belief still that, like, he's inherently Sociopaths. right. Like, it's just... Yeah. Crazy. And and what that's an extreme example. But having worked in corporate America, it's very common. It is so it's very, 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 very extremely common. Extremely common. Extremely. And I don't like I still talk to some of the people that I used to work with. So I don't want to say too much. Mm -hmm. But I know people who have done these like tests to see like what level of sociopath, like what level you're on. (laughs) And um, yeah, yes. It's not a game. Right. <laughs> but listen, I think this is an important point to like to go to bring it back to your story. I say all the time being a black person in any kind of office or any like professional environment is psychological warfare. It is. Every single day. It is. You have um, to go on. You have to wake up with your armor and go in. Exactly. So you, you put that armor on, you go in, you have to navigate, be two steps ahead, look the part. But don't respond too aggressively ever, even if you've been wrong, because then all of a sudden everybody else is a victim and you're don't aggressive. Don't aggressive. Yeah, all There's of those a lot things. Of, okay. Yeah, so it's yeah. the job you get paid to do and then the job you have to do to do the job you get paid to do. That's why I don't think people should do it for less than six figures. I was doing it because it was... Yes. I was happy. And I, I say <laughs> that all the time. Like, if, if it's going to yeah. afford you a certain lifestyle, cool. But there are a lot of jobs that you can do where you're basically a button pusher and nobody bothers you to make the same money That's true. that you would as, like, a bottom rung whatever. That's right? True. Make your choices. But, like, I think also, too, is this this idea of, like, wanting that label to say, oh, I work in corporate. Yeah. And, and, I'm and, not, I don't and care that, that, for me, I do what I do because it affords me the resources to put money into things that I want to do. Exactly. Right? So it's all about that. It's all about the end result. And after a while, even when the money is great, it does. It's like, I can't do this anymore. I just can't yeah. do it anymore. And yeah. as somebody who walked away, did something else, took a huge pay cut, then went back and done it, you know, many different ways. I always tell people like to assess what your appetite is for stress and being able to balance. Because also I think what's impressive about your story is mm-hmm. you're doing all that in a very stressful job and then com- competing um, with people who don't look like you and making those snap judgments. But most people, a lot of people who do that, black people who go through that, come home, sit on the couch, stare at the ceiling and just drink wine from a bottle. Like, because they yeah. just have nothing left to give. That's it. Um, so the fact that you were able to do that, mm-hmm. but then also consistently and effectively build a brand at the same time, is rare. Yeah. It is rare. I, I, you know, the God, thank God, you know, I was lucky that, you know, working with Donovan, you can mm-hmm. imagine we had fun every day. Yes. Um, and when you are an assistant, it's, um, it's a different type of job. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a lot, it's more freedom in a sense. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. So I know I'm um, just reading, you know, some things online that in the beginning, it didn't like immediately take off. Not at all. No. Right. So what was it like in those, those early days, six months, the first year? So it was definitely hard to get like guests. Mm -hmm. And I think we were shooting really high and nobody had ever heard, heard of us before. So I was like, all right, I can't get, and that actually ended up being a blessing, Mm -hmm. not being able to get, you know, certain guests because when you're someone with a large platform, you don't, you can't really speak as candidly, especially back then. So there were, oh, I don't think we would have got as honest a conversation as we have now. Mm -hmm. So it ended up being a great thing. So it was, you know, hard to get guests. People would say, yeah, I'm coming. And you, you come on set and nobody's there. And yes. You know, Mm -hmm. 10 people don't show up. So you have to do a panel with three people. Um, So you'll see that in the early episodes. It's like less people, um, just like really boot strapping it, less cameras, not as great cameras, not as great sound quality. Um, didn't have as much money mm-hmm. to like, you know, feed people how we wanted. Like, all right, let's buy some pizzas for lunch, y'all. Yeah. Um, but those things have changed, definitely changed over time as we've grown. And one thing that we didn't do, which I'm glad we didn't do, is we would follow the TV schedule. So, you know, mm-hmm. you come back in the fall, take a holiday break, come back in like mid-January, February, take a summer break. We would shoot all year. Right. So just we going sh- all the way through. We were like, all right, we haven't 
we don't, we looked at it as like, we should not be taking a break because we didn't, we're not there yet. So we would shoot all year and that helped us with consistency. That helped people remember us. Um, and that's really how the show grew. So how were you marketing in those early days? We weren't. <laughs> or complete word of mouth. We would organic. just put it on YouTube and people will fall down these YouTube rabbit holes mm-hmm. and find us. And, you know, as the years progressed, a lot of our episodes went viral, you know, a lot of clips went viral on social media. So we've never put money into marketing. Mm-hmm. It's all been very organic, word of mouth. The grapevine. Yeah. They heard it through the grapevine. They heard so. it through the grapevine. So, yeah. But also, too, like one of the things that I think is important to note here of why having the ability to bootstrap whatever your brand is, whatever your project is, and do it consistently for a long period of time is often people have great ideas Um, But they jump into it with both feet too soon. Mm. And the financial runway is so short that, you know, like this has to blow, it has to pop. And then when it doesn't right away and it can't be monetized. And now because they're in it 100 percent, the whole thing just dies because it's like I can't even eat. Right. I I don't know how I'm going to keep my lights on. I can't keep this going. And one of the things um, that when people ask me all the time, because I did, you know, run a law practice for five years and did all that. They're like, I'm thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. And I'm always like, listen, if you're someone who can not know where your next dollar is coming from day to day and could live with being broke or possibly losing everything and the stress that comes with that, jump in with both feet, by all means. Some people can do that and be fine. Laser like focus, whatever. But if you're someone who needs a certain level of comfort and security mm-hmm. to do to, you know, to live your life and be mentally healthy. You better hold on to that job yeah. and build bit yeah. by bit by bit. By bit yeah. um, and that that's something that, you know, we've decided to do with this show and our, and our brand. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the rabbit hole that you mentioned, I think what's great about content is it lives in perpetuity. It lives mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. So the views. Great that, thing and bad thing. <laughs> right. That is true because people will drag something you said, yeah. you know, seven years ago. Um, but it's there. So something that you might put up that got 500 views when it was first released when somebody starts to go back and look then you're still you know racking up views on that based on the audience that you have today yeah definitely Did you see that happen as well with oh yeah your definitely content? people like people tweet us all the time mm-hmm. we're binging yeah i'm going like i just found the show i'm going all the way back right. and like so yeah definitely people still watch episodes from years ago mm-hmm. so so one of the the things about the grapevine that that the press mentions and, mm-hmm. and articles and stuff. It's the Bruno Mars moment, right? Oh God, yeah. That that, <laughs> that went viral. The um, episode heard around the world. Literally, the episode <laughs> heard. Around yeah, we the made world. it to the Evening Standard, which was pretty dope. Yeah. So you. Talk about that. I'll just let you explain what happened and how that took off. Yeah, so Bruno Mars, um, he had actually been in the news previously because that conversation about him being a cultural appropriator mm-hmm. had came up. We, you know, because of money, decided to shoot that episode months later. So we didn't think that it was going to go viral. Yeah. But people love Bruno Mars. Mm-hmm. Like, love him. They do. He represents, I don't know what he represents to people, but they love that man and they will die at his altar. So when anybody, when people on the panel decided to critique him, it really became a moment. Um, a lot of people were saying that we were racist mm-hmm. um, because they don't understand the dynamics of what it means to be a Black artist, not being able to make money off of your own music, but yeah. other people coming in and being able to make money off of your own music. So that was what the real point of contention was. People were saying Bruno Mars is Black, blah, 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 blah. They're also, Donovan and Zach almost had a fight on set. And we thought that was going to be the moment that Mm -hmm. everybody hampered on. Nobody cared about that. (laughs) Nobody cared. Yeah. It became, is Bruno Mars a culture appropriator? What certain people were saying on the show. And um, before we knew it, it was snowballing, snowballing, snowballing. People Magazine, Evening Standard, Mm -hmm. Hollywood Live, uh, Fader. All these publications were taking the clip in the episode and talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, to see the grapevine and all these publications was like, wow. Yeah. It was, it was crazy. I couldn't believe it. Did you, you say you couldn't believe it, but I also know that you had this vision from the beginning. Yeah, but I so, didn't think it was going to be because of this moment. Got it. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, if you watch the show, we've had, we've had a lot of crazy converse yeah. and hard conversations. So for us and for loyal viewers to the show, this is nothing new. Right. So we didn't think that it was going to mm-hmm. be this big. It just really became a huge moment. Yeah. And like, we're super grateful, super grateful for everybody who contributed to that episode, but we didn't expect it at all. Right. But I think also um, the, the good and the bad part, right, that mm-hmm. you alluded to is oftentimes that that viral soundbite that people catch 
then they box you into that. Like they oh, think yeah. that that's the extent of the conversation. Yeah, so they thought the whole conversation was everybody hating Bruno Mars. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you understand, like, as the person is saying how much she doesn't like Bruno Mars, there's other people like yelling at her in right. the video. So obviously not everybody agrees with her. And obviously this is a debate show. Right. So that nuance was kind of like lost with a lot of people who just watched the soundbite. Mm-hmm. But we did get a lot of people who were like, I love this show. And I'm yeah. a lot of, you know, other singers started following us who agree. Yes. But can't say so publicly. Of course. We got a lot of support. Right. So the show's growing. Mm-hmm. You've gone viral more than once, but that's the one that like stands out. 155,000 subscribers on yes. YouTube, mm-hmm. 56,000 followers on Instagram. Mm-hmm. The grapevine, like Black, and I, me still working in corporate space, Black people talk about the grapevine. That's like, oh, did you, did you see this video? Like, you know, over the water cooler, lunch, yeah. what have you. Like, it's an yeah. institution yeah. now, right? Yeah. But when did you get to the point where you were like, okay, I can pull the parachute and I want to do this full time. Well, we actually had an investor come in. Okay. And um, they came in and said, you know, we want you to focus on this full time. And me and Donovan quit our jobs and started working on mm-hmm. the show full time. So never going back to corporate. Mm-hmm. So when we when we did have the investor come in, we said, okay, now's the time to just right. fully focus on this. And was it like a split decision? Like, we're in, like, let's do this. Or did you stop and think, do we really want somebody else involved in this? Well, yeah, because the kind of deal was that they didn't have any, like, creative Got say. It. it was more so like a lab type mm-hmm. of situation. So definitely, it was definitely instant. I wish we would have thought about it a little, a little bit more. Can't yeah. talk about everything now, but definitely... Definitely, we felt like it was the right time. And it was the right time. Mm -hmm. Everything happens for a reason. And we know you got to get out of here. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit more. Our normal listeners are going to be like, Dee, what are you doing? Because they know (laughs) how we do this show. Yeah. Um, But there are two important things that I want to discuss. And the first is, what is your vision for the next five years for The Grapevine and for Ashley Acuna personally? So the next five years, Grapevine will be on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the the plan. So seeing the show to get get to its pinnacle. And we do, like, I'm not going to be a millennial forever. You know, Gen Z is coming up. So I want to host a show for, you know, three more years yeah. and then fully transition into filmmaking and writing. So mm-hmm. that's the goal for me. Um, moving out of New York City. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm with you there. And, you know, moving to L.A. or maybe even Atlanta. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely getting the grapevine on TV. That's what will happen. OK, so getting the grapevine on TV, uh, moving into your filmmaking. Yes, full time. Um, yeah, people. So people will hear your story and be like, I'm really inspired. Like, wow, she that's, you know, that's the blueprint. But we all know that even when you have a vision and you're committed to it and you have a laser like focus, there are dark days oh, as yeah, well. Um, so tell us about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Um, I would definitely say um, I would definitely say this summer, this summer, you know, I dealt with a lot of death, people that I knew. And just, you know, really coming to terms with what mortality means, you know, and having to like push through and like show up. I would definitely say like, even when you have a laser like focus, life will happen. Um, Life will happen. So it's definitely important to pay attention to life and to pay attention to certain areas. But I would definitely say this summer, you know, losing a friend to breast cancer, Mm -hmm. um, losing a family friend to suicide and still having to show up and do the work and go to the meetings and shoot and do all that stuff was definitely like a difficult, difficult time. But, you know, I did it. I got through it. And how do you, how do you do it in those instances? Because I think often people um, who are trying to manifest a vision and life does happen and Mm -hmm. grief comes in crisis, find themselves in a cocoon where they're like, I just can't, I I can't expend any, any more energy into the things that I'm passionate about. It's okay to go into that cocoon. Mm -hmm. I definitely think it's okay. I remember Zach, who's been on the show, we, I had an issue a couple years ago and I, I was talking to him and he said to me, you have to grow through these things, Mm -hmm. not just go. You have to grow through it. And I think a lot of people want to just hurry up and get to the other side, but it is a process. You might sit in that dark tunnel for a while. You just have to know that it's not, no condition is permanent. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember I went to a church when I was in college in Philly. It was a Pentecostal church. And the pastor, the female pastor, she said, you know, when you're dead, the the life monitor is like a flat, it's a flat line. That Mm -hmm. means that you're dead. But when you're alive, that monitor is going to go up and down. And that's what it means to be alive. Your life will go up and down. And that's just the reality. Absolutely. That's just it. So if you want it, you just have to like live. And in that in that living and building this empire, um, because I can already see where this is going to go. Thank you so much. Um, for sure. And there's 
and it's not with every guest, but there are guests that come in here and you get the little like tingle Tingles. where it's like <laughs> this, this is somebody I'll get to say like, oh, we spoke to her, you know, uh-huh. before they were on that network and, yeah. and what have you. Um, but in terms of like, quote, work-life balance, which I think is a joke when you're trying to build something often. Oh, yeah, a- um, but have you thought about how family plays into this? Um, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Especially after this last summer experience and what yeah. I experienced, um, you know, my friend who passed away, she was actually my oldest sister's best friend. Wow. And so, you know, growing up in Jersey, so she was my oldest sister's best friend and her sister was my best friend. Mm-hmm. So it was a group of us who would always hang out together, go to the movies, do, do everything that teen girls do from middle school to high school. And when she passed away, I looked at my journal, my high school journal, 2004, and her name was Vanessa. Mm-hmm. And In the journal, I said, you know, my sister went off to college. Vanessa's still in Jersey. It's weird not seeing her come and pick up my sister. It's weird not having her calling the house, trying to track my sister down. It's weird not all of us not hanging out together. But the next time we do hang out, I was like, watch out, world. It's going to be crazy. Mm -hmm. The next time I saw her was at her funeral. Wow. So for me... The, ne- the next time that we were all together was at her funeral. I had seen her last year mm-hmm. when we were all together was at her funeral. And to me, I was like, I, where did the time go? Yeah. How? You couldn't have told me at 16 writing that in 2004 that the next time we will all be together was her funeral. Mm-hmm. So for me now at 31, work-life balance is very important to me. I have to be there for my family. I have to see my family. I have to take time out. I just have to. And Mm -hmm. my suggestion for anybody is like build your career, but also like people are not here forever. They're They're just not. And and sometimes it's not even like an illness. It can just be snuffed out all of a sudden, which has happened to me more times than I can count. And it it, it sounds cliche, but it it reminds you of, you know, what matters. A hundred percent. So, you know, before we let you go, we know mm-hmm. that you're in the public eye through the grapevine. Do you maintain a separate online persona? No, I'm a very yeah. private person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, like, I get it. Trust I, me. I don't have a personal account and everybody's mm-hmm. telling me that I need to do a personal Instagram account. But I have my friends. Mm-hmm. I have my family. I'm not in the industry. You won't see me at events like that. I mean, I am in the industry, but I'm yeah. not an industry person who's at every event. Mm-hmm. It's like very hard to find me. And I just like to live my life that way. I hear you. I hear yeah. you. I get the same. People yell at me all the time because I don't actually post. Created them. Right. Created the, the right. sites, but I don't post. Yeah. But anyway, so where can people find The Grapevine online, though? Also, we're on YouTube for now. So you can find The Grapevine. Just put in The Grapevine on the YouTube, you know, search bar and we're the first thing that comes up. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Grapevine TV. Um, and that's where we are. We're coming back with new episodes on Halloween, so... <laughs> so this will definitely be out before then. Yeah. October 31st. You guys tune in Great for timing. more hot button issues. Yes, for sure. Definitely. Well, I've enjoyed this. Me too. Thanks and I feel so like much. it's going to continue. Like yeah. we're, we're going to have another conversation. Yeah, It'll I be good. Stay longer. I know. Exactly. But listen, you making moves. You yeah. know, and it's wedding season, which we talked about, yeah, too. Gotta, so it's a lot going on. Right. right. Um, but we'll do it again. Thank you um, so much. So to our listeners, if you don't know about the grapevine, I, I don't know you. I don't know where you've been, but make sure you check out uh, the, the issues that Ashley and her team are bringing to the forefront. Um, there are some amazing things happening out there and the journey will continue for her and it'll only get bigger and the star will only rise even higher. Amen. From amen so amen. we're going to speak that into the atmosphere. <laughs> um, and also make sure you like, share, subscribe this episode similar to the grapevine. We're not really marketing either. So it's up to you uh, to share and help us publicize. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.